Thanks very much, and, and thanks for coming. Uh, I plan on being down here on the ground with you for this talk uh, as opposed to being up there. I hope that's okay. It'll allow me to move around and, and focus on you. And uh, you're going to have to forgive me, so I'll ask for your forgiveness in advance if, if some of this ends up coming off a little bit of gospel-y like. Um, but, you know, when, when we come up with these topics for talks, it's generally a great learning experience for me um, because it's really great to talk to people about pain assessment and different pharmaceuticals that could be used and, and things like that. But um, it doesn't necessarily mirror a lot of what I do uh, in the course of my professional life. So just a couple of other things that you should know about me. Um, I teach at a medical school, uh, Stony Brook School of Medicine, uh, and I've been teaching there for 13 years. I've uh, been speaking here at Pain Week for all 13. This is number 13 for me. Uh, and, and medical training programs today have changed from the days in which I went to medical school. Uh, we spend a lot more time talking with medical students about reflection, self-reflection, how things we talk about impact them, and we do it with interns and residents, too. As a matter of fact, uh, we and many other training programs around the country have reflection rounds where we give interns, residents, and fellows the opportunity to share experiences they have and to talk about them and to reflect about them and see how it could potentially impact the things that they do. That's what this talk is really about in the context of pain management. Um, I've been to a number of talks already today. I've heard what a lot of people say. Uh, some of what I heard made me feel good. Some of what I heard made me feel badly. Uh, and, you know, we're going to explore this together. Uh, I don't have anything to disclose uh, from a conflict of interest pers perspective. Uh, I do serve on the advisory advisory committee for anesthetic and analgesic drugs to the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, so I do have somewhat of a regulatory role. Uh, and if we're honest with ourselves, uh, regulatory scrutiny probably makes us want to reflect about some things we're happy about or some things we're not happy about, too. One other thing I'll share with you, uh, and again, this is a very gospel-y thing to me, uh, and I mention this every time pretty much I speak, some of the things I'm going to show you give the impression that the only people that are out there that are clinicians managing people with chronic pain are physicians. Uh, and I hate that. So if you hate it, I'd like to hear a round of applause. Because there are a lot of other healthcare providers that are stakeholders in this story and the part of this story. And you would think that in 2019, they would have gotten it by now. So if I'm showing you a slide that says physicians, it's just because I couldn't alter the text, okay? Clinicians is a much better phrase as far as I'm concerned. I would choose healthcare provider before I would choose doctor. So learning objectives are gonna become self-evident. Uh, so where do we begin? Well, we could begin with a tablet, most of us probably interact with some electronic device in the course of things we do today. Whether we're pharmacists, whether we're physicians, nurse practitioners, you name it, 
uh, when electronics came into our lives, things changed. And I married an operating room nurse. And uh, she was a circulating nurse most of the time. She would scrub sometimes, but now and then, most of the things that she did uh, related to circulating in the room and making sure that everything got done. And part of that was the documentation. And when computers came into the picture, her life changed dramatically because she still had to do everything she needed to do, but she had to manage the computer too. No matter how you slice it, people still fill out forms in the course of a day, and we have to look at the forms. And a lot of those forms that get filled out may have to do with insurance-related reasons. And there is quite a concern today in healthcare about cost. We hear about it all the time. We teach our students about it in medical school. Uh, and uh, I think it's fair to say that costs are one of the things that contribute to the pressures that we face as healthcare providers today. Plus, how do we do and document everything that we have to do in the face of controlling cost, but still delivering care? And how do we maintain our professionalism in the face of all of this? That's where this talk is really going to be heading. And lastly, how do we deal with the burnout that might come as a result of trying to juggle all of these things as we peek out from the burden of paperwork. So I typically go for my annual history and physical in May. And I went for my history and physical this year in May. And I said to my primary care provider, she's a general internist, how's it going? And she said, I have to tell you, it's terrible. And I said, why? And she said, because I can't deal with the paperwork. And she said to me, fortunately, we have scribes now. So a scribe is going to be coming into the examination room with us, and she'll be doing what I needed to do. But she would tell me stories. She was telling me stories about how she would go home at 7, 8 o'clock at night, put the kids to bed, and then have to start on her charting from home. And she'd be up until 11 or 12 o'clock trying to do this every single day. It could wear you down. And she said if it wasn't for the scribe, she didn't know if she was going to continue doing what she did. And that made me feel really badly because she's a really, really good doctor. And it made me think about this in the context of that. So these are the things that we're going to try and cover today in the context of this talk. So I guess we have to think about red tape. So I found this cute little cartoon that says, if there's anything more we can do for you, don't hesitate to fill out the proper forms. And we cut through all the red tape, but a new shipment came in this morning. And I, and I guess it's fair to say that that's what clinicians are thinking these days. So my advice to you with respect to the red tape is deal with it. I want to thank you very much. <laughs> Have a good rest of the conference. <laughs> you know, I, I think as educators and as faculty members in, at Pain Week, 
We really do try to educate people. I definitely make an effort to educate my students uh, with the best of intentions. Uh, we try and point people in the right direction. We try and dig down so you can think about, well, who do I really have to pay attention to? Do I pay attention to the books? Do I pay attention to the guidelines? Do I pay attention to the state regulations? Do I pay attention to the CDC guidelines? What do I really do in the context of pain management? Well, we try to teach you about how to think about where resources are and how to put those things into good practice. But sometimes when you play fetch with the dog, the dog brings back not the stick, but a bunch of sticks of dynamite. And it could blow up at us as educators. So I talked to, to you about the fact that this is my 13th year at Pain Week. And Dr. Gourlay and I were speaking earlier today. We were having a little chat. And, and we talked about some of the ways that the things that we've taught over the course of the last 13 years have changed. And some things, as we all know, with respect to the opioid epidemic, have turned into dynamite, right? They've turned into dynamite for organizations like the American Pain Society that sent me an email earlier this year that said, we're going to cease operations because we're involved in so many of these lawsuits that we can't afford to defend ourselves. So we're going away. So we have tried over the years, but I don't know that we've done a lot of educating people about more than the book knowledge, about more about what, what, what we need to do for ourselves. Now, I've been saying this for years and years and years. Do the right thing. <laughs> Just do the right thing. Do all the things that you're supposed to do. Even if you're going to ask me questions like, how do I have time to do this? Here's where pain falls on the list of things I have to think about in the course of reasons that I'm seeing patients, et cetera, et cetera. In my mind, and for those of you who heard me speak before, you've heard me say this, if there's any session you attend at Pain Week that doesn't distill everything down to being all about the patient, then the target got missed. Because the only reason we're here is to do something for patients at the end of the day. And maybe the role we play in doing something for patients may not be that obvious. It may not be direct person-to-person -person contact. But the reality of the matter is Every single thing we do has to be about the patient. And when we think about the list of doing good things for the patient when we're managing pain, we're trying to do good work and we're trying to make that a force that results in good care. And the list is really long. We've been hearing about the medical home model for a long time now in healthcare. We've been hearing about standardized pain assessment. I think a lot of you will probably attend a session about that. We've been hearing about guidelines, and recommendations, and opioid risk assessment, documentation, informed consent, patient provider agreements, the importance of multidisciplinary care for people who suffer from pain, bless you, uh, using multimodal treatments instead of a single mode of treatment, complementary and alternative therapy, and the list goes on. They're all really, really good things. And I'm sure there are many things I didn't include on this list. And we do practice with the best intentions. 
But the real question is, after all of these years of talking about the medical home, we have to ask ourselves a question, is it something that we can really practice in in today's environment in 2019 or not? Now, when I looked up the medical home model, I'm a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm trained also as a pediatric anesthesiologist. I figured, let me see what they have to say about the medical home or patient or family-centered medical home. And basically what they said is there are a lot of reasons why the medical home model should be a good idea. It's an approach to providing comprehensive care that facilitates partnerships between everybody, everybody involved. It's intended to create a medical practice or organized with the intention of producing a higher quality of care, improve costs, improve efficiency, improve communication, increase satisfaction. Now, I have to tell you that there's only one example I can think of local to me. I'm from New York. I live on Long Island. Of a really true medical home model. And that is the breast center that's at my hospital. When you walk into the breast center, you meet with one person and there's an entire team of people that are standing behind that person. And if you have a diagnosis of cancer made, there are all of these things that are facilitated. There's meetings with surgeons, there's meetings with oncologists, there's meetings with nurse practitioners, there's meetings with pharmacists, there's meetings with social workers, even psychologists. It's truly a medical home model. I have to tell you, I really can't point to many other good instances of a medical home model, and that doesn't mean that they don't exist. It's just that it makes me wonder as to what the likelihood is of a reality of this model in today and today's times moving forward. What I see happening in healthcare is healthcare systems are gradually taking over practices. Healthcare systems are managing decisions that are made. Healthcare systems are being more involved in decisions that we get to make. And healthcare systems are taking away a little bit of our autonomy, if you think about it at the end of the day. So it sounds like a good model, but I guess there are challenges that we think about it. And I guess if, if we think of this as the, the place and the distance to point to, it stands to reason that if we can't achieve that goal, that we're going to be frustrated about it. And that's a good first point for reflection. How is it that I really don't necessarily feel that I am the conduit of information? People come up to me and they talk to me all the time about when I talk about opioids and regulatory scrutiny and so on and so forth. They give me this scenario. There's somebody in my practice who liberally prescribes opioids and when they're on vacation and I'm covering for them and I see a patient for them, I don't really necessarily agree with what they do. So I'm really leery about giving that refill or I'm really leery about providing the continuation of that care. That's not a medical home, right? Because that's not comprehensive care and that's not communication between all the parties involved. So the key ingredients of a medical home are this relationship, a practice-based care team. The care team is responsible for providing and arranging all the patient's health care needs. This sounds really good. 
Again, the only place I can think about me seeing this is in the breast center at the institution where I teach. Patients can expect the care is coordinated across all settings and disciplines. Quality is measured and improved as part of a daily workflow. Patients experience enhanced access and communication and practices move more towards electronic health records, registries, and other clinical support systems. So here's a story. Uh, back in, anybody here from Massachusetts by any chance? No, okay, so I could say bad things about Massachusetts. <laughs> Um, back in the early 2000s, uh, a recognized uh, medical center in Massachusetts, Bay State Medical Center, made the decision to implement an electronic medical record. They were one of the first academic institutions in the state of Massachusetts to do this. And their decision was, here's what we're going to do. We're going to force all the interns and residents to use it before we push it out to the attending staff. And the reason was because we control the interns and residents. They work for us, so we could just ram it down their throats. Well, there was such a revolt among the house staff in that hospital that they had to wait until that group of interns and residents graduated before they could try reintroducing it. Now, I'm sure there might be some people here today who think that electronic medical records have really made a beneficial difference in people's lives. But I have spent a good portion of my life devoted to the role of electronics and technology in healthcare. And I would have to tell you that most people feel that, if anything, it's corrupted things that now there's a keyboard or a tablet or a computer between the patient. And now there's a scribe in the examination room with me. And you know, while my primary care doctor thinks that a scribe is a really good thing, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to think about the fact that having that non-clinical person in the room affect the quality of the discussion that I might be willing to have with my healthcare provider? It could. One of the things I always teach my students is that there is, should be no such thing as a difficult discussion. There's no such thing as a difficult discussion with respect to terminations of pregnancy, prior history of substance abuse, or anything else. And that's because the privilege of communication and trust and privacy is respected. But as soon as somebody non-clinical is in the room, Maybe it might make you answer that question differently. Food for thought. So there are clinic settings where a medical home is the norm, but for many of us, is it really a pipe dream? We've certainly been talking about it long enough that it should be the way healthcare is practiced everywhere we go. So what are the challenges to this? Well, these are direct quotes from people I've heard at Pain Week. How am I supposed to fit all this into the eight minutes I have to see a patient? Am I going to get reimbursed for this? Generally, that's in the context of doing some kind of opioid risk assessment or documentation. Is insurance going to cover this? 
It might just be better if I don't see these patients to minima minimize my exposure to regulatory scrutiny. That's something I hear around the country right now. Sounds good, but my state requires blank, 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 blank. And there are so many guidelines that my head is spinning. There are so many barriers in my way, so many stop signs, that it starts to make me a little bit dizzy. And it starts to make me nervous. And it starts to create chaos, which is about what the keynote's about tomorrow night. So please come to the keynote address because the monsters on Main Street refer to that Twilight Zone kind of episode where I am stuck in the same rut of trying to get pre-approval and trying to get approvals and trying to get this and trying to get that. Money has to be factored into the equation. How's the cost of me doing all these things going to be covered at the end of the day? And where do the rules and regulations end up putting me and end up being barriers to me? These are all challenges to the medical home model. Some people say this, I'm just not going to prescribe opioids. That's just, I'm not going to do it. So there is a wrench in the works, and this is one of those places that I was referring to before. I think it's fair to say that to some degree, paperwork and administrative burdens are ruining medicine for all healthcare providers involved. Fair statement? I know when I go to my pharmacy, the pharmacist isn't 100% thrilled about all of the paperwork and administrative burdens that they have to do and the things that they need to keep track of. Here's a little story, and this really, again, refers to the keynote. I did a lot of research and, and work with a research group up in the Boston area. And uh, back in, I don't know, like 2014, the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts called me and wanted to have a meeting with me. And I'm thinking, like, how do you even know who I am? <laughs> and I met with her, and she said, I think that prescription drug monitoring programs are going to be the silver bullet for the opioid epidemic. And I want you to help me think about what we can do for the healthcare providers in our state to make them perceive that it's not increasing their workload. <laughs> so my response was twofold. One response was, there is no one silver bullet. Maybe it's going to catch certain things. Maybe it's going to help do certain things. But don't be fooled. And here's number two, that it's not going to increase the workload for healthcare providers, because it is. Because if electronic medical records are the burden that people are carrying around on their shoulders now, this is just going to add to that burden. And at that point, she looked at me and said, I want to thank you so much for coming in today. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> so there was a poll that was done by Medical Economics saying what's ruining medicine for clinicians. I corrected that. It said physicians, I said clinicians. Paperwork and administrative burdens. Just by a show of hands. Do you folks agree with that statement or not? Okay, 
79% of people surveyed said this was the top challenge corresponding with the advent of value-based care. Spending time in front of a computer instead of a patient. Authorizations for prescription medications, tests, treatments. This is just one snippet. A family medicine physician in Durham, North Carolina said physicians are often in a tug of war for what is right for their patient's care, what, is right, what the patient's insurance will cover, and what pharmaceutical companies will allow them to prescribe. And I guess that is really referring to labeling. I or my staff members spend the majority of our weeks on the phone doing paperwork, often denied and resent having to do it again on our patient's behalf for better care. It's important to note that people in training are not immune from this. Hopkins back in 2013 did a survey of medical interns, internal medicine interns, and what they said was that they were really only spending 12% of their time with patients, nearly as much time as they did walking back and forth in the hospital during the course of a day. And that 64% of their time was involved in indirect patient care, 40% of that being behind a computer, doing quote unquote paperwork, researching patient history, getting orders in. These are pretty scary numbers. Who knows what these numbers are today? Now, on the flip side, all the medical students I meet today, they've been brought up with iPads and keyboards probably don't even matter to, you know, my, I have a desktop. My daughter looks at me and she said, oh, you have a desktop computer. It's like, I don't ever want a desktop computer. A laptop is as far as I'm willing to go. Young people today have been brought up with technology, but they also know that it's a tremendous barrier between them and what they're intended to learn. Doctors spend more time filling insurance paperwork than caring for patients, an expert says. This was in ins Insurance Business America. An industry expert says that doctors are so buried in insurance paperwork, they are spending less time taking care of patients. And over the last, this was in 2017, in the last four years, bureaucratic paperwork has contributed to a 25% increase in physician burnout. This is exactly what I was experiencing with my own healthcare provider. And that's what she was telling me. Most of my colleagues wanted to be doctors because they had a strong desire to help to heal the sick and alleviate the suffering. Yet like me, they now spend more time reading procedural rules, entering routine data than diagnosing illness or comforting patients. And this has nothing to do with respect to the patient narrative at the end of the day. That's probably a talk for next pain week because we spend a lot of time talking with our medical students about history and physical taking and trying to develop the patient narrative when in actuality what clinicians tell me today is that with all the templates and EMRs, every patient looks exactly the same. Administrative burden. Estimates by the American College of Physicians are that average healthcare provider, I had to put that in, uh, does two hours of administrative desk work for every hour spent engaging with patients. Insurance filling process comprises about 18% of the nation's total healthcare spending. And I guess we hear a lot about this in politician uh, debates now about 
you know, single-payer system and things like that to try and cut down on these things. But at the end of the day, this is the burden that we carry as healthcare professionals. Now, the Annals of Internal Medicine published a position paper back in March of 2013 to try and look at what the motivation might be for the insurers to try and keep the administrative tasks at the level that they are. And what they found was, well, one was to make sure that products and services get paid for. That's number one. Number two is to ensure high quality, high value, safe and effective care. I think somebody with marketing came up with that at an insurance company. I think that that's what we try to do, but I can tell you firsthand that my interactions with insurers is the bottom line. We need to do what's going to cost us the least amount of money and what's going to get us a better bottom line. To reduce excess and inappropriate costs and prevent or uh, identify fraud and abuse in the healthcare system. I wholly believe that that's part of the motivation for insurers in terms of the paperwork that we need to, uh, to file with them. They're trying to look to see, oh, well, you know, that person had an MRI of their spine just six weeks ago. Uh, we're not ready to approve that yet, or so on and so forth. My wife, when she makes her mammogram appointments, it has to be 366 days from the date that she has her mammogram. I don't know if that's a phenomenon you're familiar with, yeah. but she has to think about that. A yearly physical is 366 Yeah, a yearly physical, 366 days. But I think most of us would agree to some degree to ensure financial security and profitability for the stakeholder, in this case the insurance company, to maintain that bottom line. And one has to wonder if there's a lack of clear intent. Is this just the way that they are doing things, or are they looking for a way to deny products and services? Are they looking for a way to say, well, we're going to deny it the first round. We deny everything the first round. Immediately, some people are going to fall out of, of the picture, and then we'll make people go through the appeal process and, and so on and so forth. And we'll delay reimbursement as much as we can because it's always been done that way. So it was a pretty honest assessment of what's going on at the insurance company level. And we probably, for those of us in clinical practice, know that it depends on who you talk to. Sometimes you just say to someone, I've tried X, Y, and Z, didn't work. And they say, okay, that sounds reasonable. Sometimes you get people who say, sorry, doesn't fit within our quote-unquote guidelines. So you have to ask yourself the question, does this look familiar to you? Are you used to seeing people carrying the folder, carrying the laptop, carrying the stethoscope as they're opening the examination room door? I certainly am. So the AMA did a detailed survey of asking questions to physicians as to whether they spend more time on administrative tasks than your peers. And what they found was that 38% said they spend 10 to 19 hours a week devoted to bureaucratic activities. 32%, 20 or more hours. That's 70% of people spending between somewhere between 10 and 20 hours a week. That's compared to 
30 to 45 hours, 50, 56% of them said they spend with patients, and another 15% say, saying they spend 46 to 55 hours a week. So that's 71%. So for every some rare, let's take the middle road around 40, 45 hours that people are spending with patients, they're spending around 15 hours of their time devoted to bureaucratic activity. So I'm ranting, right? (laughs) So what? I always have to think about what am I going to say to you folks that you could think about on Monday morning? Because otherwise this has been a waste of time and it's just been an opportunity for me to rant. Is this just about misery loving company? Does it make me feel good to see you all raise your hands and say you hate the, you hate this and you hate that? It does make me feel good. And <laughs> but you could also say, well, you're a little ray of pitch black, aren't you? That's a Mary, Mary Lynn McPhersonism, by the way. If you go to her talk, that's something she would say. This is really about burnout and about how we can reflect on the challenges we face today with all of the things I've laid out with respect to our life as a clinician, the time pressures we have, the chaotic environment that's often created, the smaller and smaller amount of control of pace that we have as systems start to get more involved with the work that we do, and electronic medical records, not to mention our lives outside of our professional lives. And we spend a lot of time in 2019, talking about this with our medical students, but nobody ever talked about it with me. So I'm talking about it with you. Implications of burnout can jeopardize what our best intentions are. It's great that I can educate you about how to stay on the rails of managing patients with chronic pain. It's really good. I can give you opioid risk assessments to use. I could give you copies of patient-provider agreements to use. But the reality is that clinical implications of burnout could affect the safety of the care we provide, our level of professionalism, and ultimately a low level of patient satisfaction. And And it can impact our outcomes. But when it starts to scratch at the surface of our level of professionalism, what's likely to happen is we're not going to feel good about what it is we do. And we may not necessarily think we're giving the most ethical care that we could give to patients, but we can then say, well, but it's the system I live in. What else can I do? It can also erode our ability to provide empathetic care. Because in those eight minutes, and if you're lucky enough to have more than eight minutes, how are you supposed to give that little piece of you to the person to make them feel that you know what it is that they're going through? In my mind, this is about stopping and reflecting about how this could impact our ability as healthcare professionals to maintain our professionalism, regardless of whatever discipline you are in. It's about how we make sure that our ethical principles are not being violated. I'm giving a talk later this week on pain, drugs, and ethics, and it's all about patients' rights and how we use ethics to determine decisions we make for patients. We have a right 
to think about the fact that we deserve the ability to have autonomy in what we do. We deserve the ability of making sure that we're not done harm. We have the ability of making sure that we get to decide what benefits us the most and that at the end of the day, justice is going to be on our side. We need to identify what the potential barriers to care are, to expect them, to understand them, to conquer them, or at least have a good plan B, to navigate them alongside the patient, because the patient is the reason that we're there. So our mission at the end of the day isn't corrupted. Now, you went into a healthcare-related field because of any other reason than caring for patients, then this probably doesn't apply to you. It certainly doesn't apply to any nurse I've ever met in my whole life. Every nurse I've ever met in my whole life has been devoted to empathetic care. And every nurse I know is frustrated by the things that get in that way. Now, with respect to the really good plan B, I think it's fair to say in the times that we're in now, I recommend that you challenge people at any session you attend that where opioids are discussed, what's a good plan B? I was at Dr. J's talk this morning, and he talked about all of the things that all these different regulators and agencies don't want you to do. It's really, really important to have a good plan B. If you know de facto that there are certain things that are not on your formulary, if you know de facto there are some things that aren't going to fly, it's, it's to your benefit from the burnout perspective to have a really good plan B. And make sure you know where the barriers are coming from. So I'm going to give you a case in point. Since I'm on this FDA advisory committee, one of the talks I have given at this conference and I give around the country is the regulatory agency will see you now. And it's all about distilling the different regulatory guidelines that are out there and helping clinicians figure out what do I pay attention to, what do I follow, what do I do to keep myself safe. And I do a really good job of defining regulatory agencies, and I usually have a picture of my wife come up on the slide because she's my regulatory agency. <laughs> One time I was giving this talk, and I had a moment of reflection. Jennifer Bolin, who is one of our faculty members, and she's sitting in the back of the room right now, and you'll see her throughout the course of this meeting and at the keynote tomorrow, said to me, do you include insurers or payers as regulatory agencies in this talk? And my answer to her was no. And she said to me, well, maybe you should. When you think about it, they often dictate what we can and cannot do. And I said to her, you know, I really didn't think about it, but you're absolutely right. So thank you. Then I get home from the conference we were at, and I see this in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was published in February 2019, this year. Structural iatrogenesis, a 43-year-old man with opioid misuse. Case study in social medicine. And I have to tell you, for me, the biggest cash raise is structural iatrogenesis. Because everything I've been talking to you about today is about how systems and structures are negatively impacting things that we do and potentially negatively impacting care we give. 
So this article was a case study about what happened in real life to this 43-year-old man. So I'm going to take you through this case. Most of us know what iatrogenic means. I don't need to define it to you, but basically anything we ever do for a person can have negative consequences. In the context of pain management, most of you have probably seen this or some variants of this graphic. In the context of pain management today and the opioid overdose epidemic, healthcare providers are often considered to be responsible for iatrogenically creating the crisis. It's a different talk, but it's fair to say that a lot of people feel that that's the case. So what does structural iatrogenesis mean? It means causing harm to patients by bureaucratic systems within healthcare, including those patients intended to benefit from them. So this case is about a 43-year-old male with opioid misuse. And I put an asterisk up there because I didn't really feel that they accurately defined misuse. I think they were really talking about abuse. But it just goes to show you how the terminology can make a whole world of difference. So just to review, misuse is taking a medication that's prescribed in a way that it's not prescribed. Abuse is taking a medication for a different reason than it was prescribed. So if an opioid helps you sleep at night and long after your pain's over after your surgery, you take it to help you sleep, you're abusing the drug. If you double up on the dose or you take an extra dose, you're misusing it. Fair? Fair. So this male had destructive rheumatoid arthritis, worked in an auto parts factory. He was only able to work because of adequate pain control. And he was well treated with acetaminophen hydrocodone for 15 years, stable regimen, no evidence of increased opioid risk. The healthcare provider was doing everything they needed to do. 2011, as part of an opioid risk mitigation strategy, the clinic began requiring patient-provider agreements, periodic urine drug testing. Uh, consistently, he had adherence to the medication he was being prescribed. There were never unprescribed substances in his random urine drug screen. And then three years later, the insurance company began to require annual prior authorizations for all controlled substance refills. This resulted in sometimes in small delays in receiving the medication that one time a year when the authorization was supposed to go through because you could imagine you call the office, you get somebody at the front desk, it's going to be taken care of, it doesn't get it taken care of, etc. But not too many bumps in the road. Just a little bit of red tape. Then, two years later in 2016, the patient's primary care provider retires. Care is transferred to another provider in the same clinic. The existing plan is continued, but then the insurer changes the policies again and now starts requiring more frequent authorizations, prescriptions for every single refill to be sent to the pharmacy every 15 days. The new provider was occasionally late providing the prescriptions and getting the authorizations due to the multitude of steps involving the insurance company's requirements. So what started to happen? Gaps in the treatment. Patient didn't own a car. 
That's important. This is something we teach our medical students to ask, by the way. How do you get to the clinic? How do you get to our office? How do you get to see me? Could answer a lot of questions about lateness and missed appointments and things like that. Well, it was difficult enough for him to get to a pharmacy before. He began to have several day gaps in his medication because he couldn't get to the pharmacy. He started to experience severe pain, mild withdrawal symptoms. His work performance uh, decreased. He got cited for poor performance at work, and he was scared that he might lose his job. At his next office visit, he requested more pills to cover the gap periods. Now, this sounds pretty reasonable to me. Healthcare provider noted that patient anxiety and nervousness was present, and along with the healthcare providers feeling uncomfortable about the request made by the patient, no additional medication was prescribed. Three months later, what happens? The urine drug test reveals unprescribed oxycodone. Does this sound unreasonable? People are going to do what they have to do. On discussion, the patient reported that he obtained oxycodone from a friend during one of his gap periods. The following month, unprescribed oxycodone again identified in the urine sample. The provider was already overwhelmed and frustrated by the frequent authorizations and noted that the patient violated his opioid contract and that the patient was determined to be at increased risk and now he was referred to a local pain clinic. We could all see this happening. The wait time at the pain clinic was four months. Once he got to the pain clinic, there was a big sign in the waiting room saying no opioid prescriptions for the first two visits. Went back to the primary care provider. Their relationship had now deteriorated. deteriorated. He was labeled as an opioid abuser. And now, is this on his permanent record? He begins purchasing his full regimen now from this friend that was supplying him the oxycodone. So who wins in this story? Who loses in this story? Now, the analysis of this case was that there was actually a form of violence that was imposed on this person who was really on a staple regimen, and that there was a causation of harm by this new policy which was intended to make things safer. Well, the follow-up is that the healthcare provider expresses concerns about the risk of overdose and their own legal liabilities, and the patient's encouraged to return to the pain clinic. As long as they do that, then prescriptions will be provided for the gaps. A medical assistant files for an exemption to the insurance company for the 15-day rule citing transportation limitations. And unsatisfyingly, we really don't know what happens to this gentleman. But I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands of people just like him. So the questions we have to ask is, could this lead to an overdose? Absolutely, it could. Could this patient get back on the rails? They probably could. What would you have done in this situation if you were the primary care provider? What could have prevented this? These are things for reflection. So the take-home messages I'm going to leave you with or watch out for institutional iatrogenesis. It may hinder our mission. Think about the case we just described and how maybe you would have handled this situation differently because there are a load of people out there 
who are going to do exactly this. It's fair to you to have realistic goals and expectations, and it applies to us and patients when we think about what's likely to be covered and what might not. And ethical mandates apply to us too. We get to make our own decisions or we fight to have that right. We get to protect patients from harm. We get to advocate for patients based on their individual needs and we follow the law. There's no question burnout is real. There's no question it can depersonalize us. It can make us feel bad about what we do and not achieving our goals. It can make us feel exhausted and exasperated. The work-life axis is important and burnout can potentially compromise everything that we love about the work we do, which should ultimately boil down to caring for patients. So things we could do, according to Kevin MD, is reduce the number of quality measures that are imposed upon us, standardize measures across different payers, automate as much as we can, and try and seek a balance between tracking and improving quality versus having time for clinicians to do what they do. Now, these things are not unique, these challenges facing us. We talk a lot about what's happening in this country, but I can tell you that it affects people in different specialties. This was written by a private cardiology office in Switzerland. This was written in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Public Health. We don't own these problems. So my suggestion to you for Monday morning regarding the iatrogenesis is recognize and alter, avoid structures that systematically may potentially harm patients. Put your foot down about what you ultimately will not do. Advocate for patients. Think of alternative solutions along with the patient. Now, I was trained to say if you give a patient enough time, they'll tell you what's wrong with them. If you try and figure out what's a realistic treatment plan with a patient, you'll go a lot further. Don't generalize and don't necessarily think that what might deter abuse in one patient might not harm another. Bend policies according to context. Document everything you do, but bend policies if you find that it's just not going to work for that individual patient. I can tell you I have been involved in a number of chart reviews, and if things are well documented with regard to the reason that decisions were made, they're going to stand up and hold muster. Don't penalize patients for being late to an appointment if you don't know what their challenges are. It's critical for us to fight the fight so we can be professionals, we can deliver empathetic care as safety, safely, effectively, respectively, and ethically as possible. It's just really important that we don't throw in the towel and make sure we don't give up the ship in the process. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yes, sir. Awesome, but I feel like I've been in three different lectures, so I want to go back to the middle one. Um, you've been doing this long enough. I've been listening to this long enough to ask this question. Okay. Uh, how do you see the success of the medical home when you've lived through the demise of the multidisciplinary pain management model? I think it's a pipe dream. 
I think the medical home is a pipe dream. I think it sounds good on paper, but in practicality, uh, until something drastically changes in our healthcare system, it's a really good thing, but not going to happen. That's right. Just like the multidisciplinary. That's right. Who holds the, at, at, at this stage in my life, and, you know, almost ready to retire in about three or four years, who holds the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies accountable for this kind of thing? Because I had a patient who wrote a letter because the insurance company will not pay, and he killed himself. Yeah. So that's a really, really good question. And the reality is, Nobody holds the insurance companies uh, accountable for this. I was once asked to give a pain 101 lecture for representatives of every major insurer across the country. And it made me feel really good uh, to be asked. But I give this talk, and they were really there to decide whether or not they were going to cover a new very expensive treatment for chronic pain, a new biologic. And they asked me to stay till the end of the meeting, so I did. And at the end of the meeting, they went around the table and they said, we don't really care if it helps patients. It's just too expensive, so we're not going to approve it, no matter what you say, no matter what the data shows. So nobody holds them accountable. But here's, here's a good thing to try and think about. You know how we're always talking about documentation, documentation, documentation? Here's a story. I once got home and I flipped on the lights in my house and half the house was off and half the house was getting way more electricity than it was supposed to. And it turned out that I didn't know this, that there are actually 210 volt lines coming into my house and there's a bridge between them called the common that is supposed to make sure that not more than 110 is going into each line. Well, that bridge failed in my house and half my house was getting 220 and the other house, half was getting nothing. So I called the electric company. And they said, we'll have somebody to your house tomorrow morning. And I said, but I'm smelling plastic melting. So they said, that's as soon as we could do it. So I said to the person, I just want your name. So I could write it down. So if my house burns down between now and tomorrow morning, I could document who I spoke to. In two hours, there were so many electric company trucks in my house. I can't tell you how shocked I was. So when somebody makes a denial to you, when an insurance company makes a denial, make that part of the medical record and let them know that this is going to be part of the patient's legal medical record. Because what you were doing in a very small way is holding them accountable. Just a small piece of advice. Yes, sir. It seems like uh, the patients in the middle of the battlefield cannot supply for the pharmaceutical company on one side and the insurance company on the other. And I think it's not just insurance company, but the pharmaceutical company is charging so much. How are we going to... The patient is the one that suffers. in between. I don't know, the, pa the patient is the one that suffers at the end of the day. And, uh, you know... If, if we all agree with the fact that technology has come in between us and the patient, I think most of us agree that insurers have come between us and the patient as well. So it's a challenge. There are people who feel 
that a single-payer system is the way to deal with all of this. And, and you know what? There would, would have been a time in my life when I would have screamed too. Uh-huh. But I think it's really important for us to realize, and I see this with my medical students. Yeah. I mean, now my new students are class of 2023. They know what the future looks like for them. Their skin doesn't crawl when you say single-payer system to them. But they mm-hmm. are taught to, to reflect about the pressures they feel. They are taught to think about the patient narrative. And they are taught to think about considering the medical home model. So we have to hope that there's some happy medium that maybe exists in the future where patients' goals and our goals get closer to each other without so much layered in between. We have to hope that. Yeah, but when they say Medicare, you know, I'm scared of Medicare. They, no, I'm Medicare. scared of Medicare, too. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. I can only walk so fast. <laughs> I think we were all excited about electronic medical records and the uh, medical home concept, but what we really got was an industrial medical complex that controls from the top down, starting with United Healthcare on down. And they own everything, and they control everything. And then we get EHRs like Epic that tell you what you can and cannot write for. If you want to give what you would give your own family member, it would take you 45 minutes and 50 clicks on the computer, but you've got a family to think about. So for your patient, you don't pass the mom test. You you populate with one click with a with the crappiest, lowest level of, 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 of medication possible so you can get home. And I so couldn't we're, agree we're, with you more. We are training doctors with, with our EHRs like we train horses when you put a rope around their neck and you lead them around in circles until they're too exhausted to fight. And that's what the EHRs do when it comes to ordering of uh, medications that you probably wouldn't give your own family member. Well, I can tell you this. My analogy for electronic medical records is they should be just like my ATM card. I could fly to Spain and in the airport put my ATM card in the machine and get money. With the electronic medical records, it created a new industry. And there are all these players in the industry that are competing against each other, and it's not in their best interest. For those of us who are old enough to remember, there were competing ATM systems. There was the Sirius network, there was this, this network, there were that network, and I had to know which ATM card I had that would be compatible with the network. That's not going to work, but that's the way electronic medical records are today. So we have to hope. But for those of us who are involved in teaching young healthcare professionals of tomorrow, teach them about these things. Talk to them about these things. Talk to them about it being more than just a keyboard. Because at the end of the day, it's going to give them a much higher level of satisfaction. I want to thank you very much. I'll still be here if you want to come up and talk to me. Bye.